Welcome to season two of the Miss Vision podcast. This year in 2017, I decided to take on a co-host. So welcome, Joya DeVita. Hi, I'm Joya DeVita, and I've been friends with Jackie for several years. We did a documentary together called Beautiful Birth. I'm also reviewing movies. I am a movie lover, and Jackie and I hope to produce a bunch of movies together. I'm really excited to have Joya joining me because uh, we talk about movies a lot, so this is a good platform for us to talk about movies and to other filmmakers. So our format is going to change just slightly, but it's going to be so much better. We have a blog that is featuring all of our visionaries from 2016, where you can check out all of our new visionaries as we talk to them as well and see clips of their work and also find links to other cool things that we talk about like fellowships, festivals, and competitions. And we're creating a YouTube channel for the podcast to be easier found by others who might stumble upon us there. We have a few other cool ideas we're thinking of adding to the Miss Vision world, so stick with us and tell your friends to join our conversation. This week, our visionary is none other than the mistress of suspense, Lou Simon. But first, let's get all this other stuff out of the way. What's up this week? Writers, I want to remind all the writers listening that the nickels are open right now and there are three deadlines. If you missed the March 7th early deadline, don't worry because the regular deadline is April 10th and the late deadline is May 1st. So you still have time to get your screenplays in. And every writer or writing partnership can enter up to three screenplays. Screenplays must be between 70 and 160 pages, but preferably no more than 125. So Jackie, what's the Nichols? For any writers who don't know what the Nichols is, it is a writing competition held by the Academy every year. So every year what the Academy does is they award five fellowships to unestablished writers who have earned less than 25000 in their career as a writer, and each fellow is expected to complete at least one screenplay within the year of being awarded their fellowship. So even if you don't win a fellowship, but your screenplay makes the top 50 or top 25, your name is passed around to agents and managers and producers, so it can help you get representation or launch your career. So if you think that you're ready, enter the Nichols. Their website has a lot more information about rules, requirements, so check that out. You've got nothing to lose because even if they hate your screenplay, every writer who submits to the competition has the option of getting feedback on their scripts, which they can then utilize into rewrites and make their story stronger and try again next year. Wow, that's awesome. Awesome. Everyone who has scripts should put them in because you can learn and gain a lot of insight on your script. And this particular insight is coming from people at the Academy. Isn't that awesome? And if you're interested in writing for TV, check out the CBS, ABC Disney, WB, Fox's Diversity Development, and the Writers on the Verge programs, which have deadlines in May. Some of them are not open yet, but that gives you plenty of time to write your spec script. The Nickelodeon and HBO access deadlines have already passed. So good luck to all of you who enter into these competitions this year. You know Gina Davis, right? The actress. She was in Beetlejuice and Salmon Louise. Mm -hmm. I just read an article about her. She founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. And she's really focusing on trying to bring more women in film because she she wants it to be more of a 50-50 thing. And right now it's like an 80-20 thing. And she, she feels that 
it's like inherent sexism in that men see themselves on the big screen so they think that they're special and because there's more men on the big screen than women on the big screen when women don't see themselves or who they could be on the big screen it makes them internalize that they're not special so she's made it a mission to try and bring equality into filmmaking and I think that that's pretty cool love her and love what she's doing with that it's also really cool that the Shatterbox Anthology which launched last year with Refinery29 joined forces with NYU's Fusion Film Festival this year, which was designed to empower young female storytellers competing in the male-dominated Hollywood. That took place this past weekend, March 2nd through the 4th, featuring workshops and presentations with inspiring and established women in the industry. If anybody out there listening was at this event, send us a, a message or a comment on the blog or a comment on Facebook or wherever and let us know what your experience was like. We'd love to hear all about it. That sounds so cool. Did you hear about the internet movie database IMDB is adopting something called the F rating system to highlight the role of women in film they are putting some kind of notification on their pages to basically announce that it either has a strong a significant woman on screen in their own right or a director or that it was written by a woman. So IMDb is trying to focus on women in film by putting this notification on their pages. Yeah, that's awesome. So be on the lookout for the F rating on IMDb. Amazon Direct has a new cool bonus incentive for their top digital content creators. They will be distributing a share of $1 million a month as a bonus to the top 50 movies, top 10 TV seasons, top 25 digital content providers. So if you've got content to upload to Amazon Direct, there has never been a better time to do it. Check out their terms and service and all their rules and stuff at their website and proceed with luck. That sounds so exciting. I also just heard about something that's going on on March 10th in Hutchinson, Kansas, I believe. Uh, at the Historic Fox Theater. It is called Unifest, and it's a series of short films, I believe, written and directed, produced. I'm not really sure what they're, you know, what it is specifically, but they're raising awareness of women's issues while supporting people of Hutchinson at the same time. So if you happen to be in Hutchinson, Kansas, you should definitely check it out. It's a, a viewing party. They're calling it like a women's night out, and it definitely looks interesting. This week, we're talking about the importance of feedback on screenplays. As a writer myself, I understand that it's hard to take criticisms, but I also know the value and how it has helped my work in the long run. And lately, we've been watching some movies by independent filmmakers that clearly didn't go through as many table reads as it needed to, if any at all. As a writer, I think table reads are so important. And as someone who has been not only at my table reads, but a valuable player at them, let's discuss the importance of feedback on screenplays, Joya. I know that we've discussed this so many times. Yes. I mean, one thing that I said to you uh, after the first table read that we did here in in L.A., because we had the same script in in Florida, and once we had the table read here and you received the feedback, I was so blown away by how graciously you accepted the feedback. Because I felt so attached to the script already, I was, like, angry when people were giving you feedback and saying, well, maybe this character should be doing this, and maybe this character should be doing that or maybe they won't say it this way 
and me, I was like, how dare you? But you were like taking notes and you were like, yeah, that's a great idea. I think that I'm totally going to try that. And then you like would take what they said and you rewrote the script. I mean, you didn't take everything that people said and put it all in the script because not every idea was a fantastic one. But it was it's really impressive as like another writer, artist, whatever, to just see you take the, the critique and, and the feedback and work with it and you basically take something that was already really good and then you polish it and polish it and fine tune it and you have like something that was already good and you can make it awesome and I think like you just mentioned the amount of shorts and features that we've been watching lately I don't think that everybody's doing that because Mm -mm. some stuff is really unnecessary in these films that we're seeing. Well I also think there's a lot of dialogue issues or a lack of dialogue issues there's either too much or not enough or there's too much on the phone and not enough you know too much tell me and not enough show me and mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I've learned from doing table reads is there's something really powerful and really cool about hearing your script out loud for the first time because there's what you think you wrote and then there's what you actually wrote so when you hear a table read you hear what you actually wrote not what you think you wrote and then when other people mm-hmm. give you their input you know I don't love everybody's ideas but I do like a lot of people's ideas and you know a lot of people had really great ideas that I thought were just you know I look at what the script was I mean forget what it was four years ago four years ago was completely different script because it was gender swapped I swapped the main character who used to be a male now is a female and so that really changed the whole dynamic of the story in a really cool way but you know when you look at what the script was let's say six months ago and what it is now it is completely different and I think so much stronger I think the character development is so so much stronger now and it wouldn't be that way if I didn't do those table reads and how many how many have we done I mean at least Um, like five six at least I think somewhere along along you know five or six yeah you know and and each time there's new people that come and new people offer input and, and different ideas that that nobody brought up before and I've seen the script evolve and and now it's at a place where I feel like I don't really want to do any more table reads I just want to move it to the right. next stage and done like I'm happy with it I think the majority of the people that are locked in and involved are happy with it and you know but but that's something that's not easy for a lot of writers to do it's really hard and as we're watching these independent films and I see that there's so much substance missing or there's trying to throw too many ideas in at once and it's not mm-hmm. working yeah I I definitely agree I think that sometimes things can get lost in between your mind's eye and what is on paper. And I think that having these table reads can help bring out what you had originally wanted to put out. You know what I mean? Like it's it's an easier way to retain the vision that you had in your head when you put it down on paper. Because when, when I read the script, I read it in one voice. But when you have a table read with several actors that will put their own intonation into how things are said and it really brings the script to life that it didn't it didn't have before like if you and I sit there and just read the script to each other sure you'll hear it in my voice and you'll hear it in your voice and however I interpret it but when you bring in other actors that can also interpret it interpret your lines in their own way it it really brings it to life I think that it's better to have it even if you're not using the same actors for the table read as the film 
you need that so it's not just like a cold read. You can't just bring actors in and hand them a script, get them off book and be like, okay, we're going to shoot right now. There has to be like at least a read through and at least a rehearsal. And I know in independent films, you don't have the time for that. I feel like in particular, this one independent feature movie that I watched last week that I had you watch some of with me. Mm -hmm. I feel like this screenplay in particular would have benefited so much had the writer done table reads, had they sat down and, and heard from outside people who are not going to be involved with the movie, people who are going to be in your audience, what isn't, isn't right. working. There's I really something that's so beneficial. Talking about. Yeah, you know exactly what you're talking about. There was, you know, there was dialogue that was completely unnecessary. And then there were like kind of plot holes why these people were interacting with each other the way that they were interacting. There wasn't any kind of explanation on why they were acting this way with each other and you know it would, it would just be helpful to get the audience to understand what's supposed to be happening on screen if they had a little bit of the history of the characters or why well, and that's that's what it's supposed to that's what a screenwriter is supposed to convey You're, the story is supposed to unfold throughout the film and at no point did this story give me any substance into the characters and there was a lot of talk on the phone and not seeing the other person on the other end of the phone sometimes. There was way too much phone conversation in this one script. And I feel like the premise was a strong premise. And had there been table reads done? And, you know, this list goes for many screenplays. You know, we watch a lot of movies. So I'm starting to get to a point where I can tell which ones have gone through table reads and rewrites and which ones are either on their first or second draft. It's just at, when you watch enough movies, these are just things you can tell over time based Based on how polished they are and how polished the characters are because I don't care what anybody says you can be the best writer in the world and your first draft should never be your final draft and that's coming from a writer like and I'm that's something you'll hear Hollywood producers say as well when I'm watching videos for virtual pitch fest you'll see a lot of Hollywood producers talking about how many hands a script will go through before it gets made and although we're not necessarily talking about all of the films that we want to see get made be studio films there's a reason why the studios do that and it's because they want to tell the best possible version of your story and on your first and second draft you're not there yet I don't care how great of a writer maybe your first draft is really good it's not going to be your final draft or it shouldn't be your final draft but it's hard I but I know as a writer I also know it is hard to take criticism it's really hard when you're tied to something and you're emotionally invested in something and you hear someone saying well maybe it could be done this way or what about this right you know it can be and that's why I was like so impressed that you you were able to take people's suggestions it's like I mean it's hard and you can't young writers Young writers who are very sensitive, like, I guess I never really considered myself to have thick skin. Honestly, I really consider myself to be quite sensitive. But I think when I'm sitting at these meetings and these table reads and I get the feedback I get, I'm realizing that either I'm building and growing that thick skin or I already have it because, you know, when people give me suggestions and feedback, I don't think that it's something personal that they're telling me I'm a horrible writer and I should never write. Instead, I, I look at it as they're telling me, well, but if you think about it this way, it might make it a little better. And Right. And, and I, you know, once everybody started talking and you were taking 
asking me the the feedback and and working with it and like like I said you blew me away with that then I started warming up to it and being like oh wow this is like this is pretty so cool I think you also saw just... the evolution of the story and the characters and right. you know how much we were able to do with it and how the one character became so interesting that now I want to yeah. write a whole spin-off <laughs> a completely script. different script about that person yeah and that wouldn't have evolved it wouldn't have evolved that way if we didn't do the table reads and if I didn't get the feedback and I think it's important to consider who your audience is and then bring bring those people into your you know have people who are in your corner have people who are your friends but don't have only your friends have people who are colleagues right. have people who are professionals have people who are going to be honest with you that are not going to blow that are not interested in blowing smoke up your ass but that are actually interested in helping tell the best possible stories because then they want to become a part of it I mean how many people at these table reads have said I want to be involved when do we shoot right yeah you definitely know? I mean you so, don't want to have a table read with all of just your friends so they can all just sit there and smile at you and say you know what it's great it's beautiful the way it is just leave it you want to have a table read with people that have some experience or you know and not, I mean, it's not even necessary to have some experience just to have their own thoughts in their own head. They can be like, listen, you know, I really like this character, but no man would say this. Like, maybe you should right. reword it. Or Exactly. Like, if you're I a really woman, like character, if you're but, a woman and you're you know, writing on men, yeah. right. I, Definitely. I think if you're a woman you writing men, like you need that. And if you're, yeah, if you you're writing back from a man, and if you're writing outside of your culture, you know, you need feedback from other cultures. If you're, if you have one Absolutely. character that from India, you need someone who who understands that culture to be there and guide you and say, yeah, this is this is totally offensive. You need to take this out. You, <laughs> yeah. know? Uh, you know, you might not know what what you're saying is offensive unless someone is there to guide you and say, uh, no. Right. There, there's so much good that I think comes out of table reads, but I don't think it's something writers should be scared of. I think it's something writers should be excited about because it's also a time when you get to hear your characters come to life. Mm -hmm. The first time I had yeah, a table that read. Yeah, that is really cool. It really is. I, the first time I had a table read with the first screenplay I wrote when I put myself through film school a few years ago, it was... It was so cool because I sat back and closed my eyes and I didn't read anything and everyone else read and I just sat back and closed my eyes and I was able to envision everything. It mm -hmm. was awesome. I loved it. Not only do I think is it really good for your script and, and for you as a writer to help you evolve your story by getting that feedback, but I also think it's really cool to just sit back close your eyes and hear it. And you also hear the typos. Like, that's why I love having right. you be the narrator because I know you're going to read it exactly because as I, I wrote it. Because <laughs> I get caught up on the typos. <laughs> I'm like, Which is great. did you mean to say? Nope, read it exactly yeah. as I wrote it because that's how I hear it. Because like I said, there's what you think you wrote and then there's what you actually wrote. And mm -hmm. there's also the fact that, you know, how many times do I send you something just to proofread and ask you to scan for typos because I've been staring at a screen for 12 hours and I'm my right. eyes are not going to catch everything. So it's really important, especially as we're talking about submitting things to the Nichols and all these other fellowships, you definitely want to proofread and you want to have a second set of eyes scan your work for things That's for typos. A yeah, set. at the very least two sets. Uh, I always ask you and at least my mother or one other person that I know is mm -hmm. going to go through and, and just look for anything grammatical, anything. If I have a comma out of place and the spelling and grammar, grammatical error that my spell tech right. and grammar isn't picking up, you know, it's so Another important. Another thing in 
script writing that I, you know, I've, I've had, I've read a few scripts since I've been here, which I don't even know how that's happened that I've come across as many as I have, but you know, it's LA, I guess. And it's important to try and share what the idea of your character is in your script, you know, just some kind of little description. So it makes it easier to imagine a specific actor in that role or just imagine what this person looks like. And like just just little details, you can't put you can put too many details in a script because it is a script. Things should be acted, things should be, you know, shown in the scene. But if there's action in the scene, you should definitely put it. Like you always put all of your action in the scene, or like when somebody beats their hands on the table, you know, show the body language, show what, yeah, show their emotional state, show what's going on, and and of course, also, unless you're the writer director or the writer producer, the one thing that I've noticed writers also have a hard time with, and we will get we'll get some writers to come on and and um, validate this, but I know from when I was doing the the class, the master class with Franco, and just from talking to other writers in the industry, as a writer, unless you are the writer-director, like I said, you have to expect that your script is going to change. And if, especially if you sell it to a studio, if you sell your script to a studio, expect that maybe 30% of what you wrote, if you're lucky, is what's going to be on screen. Your script is going to go through right. so many hands. So if you're not willing to do your table reads and do your rewrites, somebody else is going to. It's going to get and done anyway. It's going to get done. So unless you're the writer-director or the writer-producer, in which case you maintain some of the control and you might be the one who's able to do the rewrites if that's the case. Um, that, that's, that's the other thing, and, and we'll discuss this on another episode, is the huge difference between the independent world and the studio world, which I'm learning a lot more about interning with a production company that works only with the studios and they're very anti-independent films. So there's a huge difference between the two worlds. I used to think that it only meant where your funding comes from, but there's actually a huge, um, a huge difference in the protocols and, and everything. So we can discuss that in another podcast. But, you know, if you're writing a script that you intend to sell, you have to be ready to sell out, not be married to your ideas. That was something a lot of the writers in the Franco class had an issue with. A lot of them didn't like the fact that their scripts were being changed and that the finished product didn't sound a lot like what they wrote originally. Mm-hmm. My writer, my writer hated it so much that she didn't want her name on the final cut of our film. As a writer, you have to understand that you can't, you cannot afford to be married to your work. I've been writing since I was nine, but I never stopped taking writing classes. I've been taking creative writing classes like my whole life. Out here, I still take script writing classes, but I think no one is too good to take classes. Like keep taking classes, keep learning, keep learning your books about script writing. Like, I, I just got a bunch of books out of the library about script writing just to hone in on it all. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. Like, there's, there's definitely, a, if you're playing a game, it's important to know all the rules. So either take a class, read a book, talk to people, talk to other filmmakers, talk to other writers. Don't think that you're an island and that you don't need the input from other people because the, the way that you can become great is by accepting feedback from others and polishing the works that you're working on. And read screenplays, read scripts, because that is, if you read Academy award-winning scripts and you 
mimic that style, not the stories, but that style, then you will also be capable of writing an Oscar-worthy script. These are things to consider. There's there's a reason why the masters are the masters, and we'll wrap this with the fact that, of course, there are always exceptions to the rule. I've heard of some films, particularly short films that I've loved, that went into production on a first or second draft with no table reads, and they turned out great. And on that note, this week, our visionary prefers the title the mistress of suspense please welcome miss lou simon to the miss vision podcast i'm lou simon i am a writer director and producer which i guess now everybody's a filmmaker because in reality when you do indie films and you do more than those three jobs as well i started this journey in 2011 so it hasn't been that long and in that time i've made five feature films and the second third and fourth have worldwide distribution and the last one i just finished so i'm starting in a journey that right now. That's really awesome. I think in the five years that you've been doing this, you've accomplished a lot more than a lot of people I know who've been doing it for a lot longer. And that's really inspiring for, especially for independent filmmakers. It's huge. Not so much an accomplishment as it's just a lunacy, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all from South Florida. We had actually been talking recently about South Florida and South Florida film incentives and the possibility of bringing one of our films back there to go and shoot. But then we found out, hey, guess what? Florida has no more film incentives. And I know that you had some frustrations with that. So I wanted to kind of talk about that because I want to know, I haven't been in Florida in the last couple of years, but what happened? What happened in Florida? You know, it's, it's been going around the country, actually. It hasn't just been in Florida. It's been, you know, started with North Carolina, then one one place after the other. There's an actual group that is actually going around and uh, rumors that they're back like the Cox Brothers. And they're pretty much just going from one place to the other, sort of, I guess, lobby being against using tax incentives to bring film business to a different state. And, and Florida was one of those places that just, uh, I guess didn't really appreciate what the film industry can do for the economy of, of, the, of the, the state. And they just did away with them. And one by one, every show that had been filming there has left. And the last one that was remaining was Ballers with HBO. And, you know, I, I said it last year. I'm like, it's just a matter of time before they leave. And lo and behold, they did. So it, it's been coming for a long time which is why the majority of people ha- who were in the film industry either have left completely or they live in Florida, they have to travel to get any work because there's just there's just not much going on there. And I'm one of those people. And I'm, you know, been in Georgia for two weeks and I have no plans of going back unless, you know, things change. Yeah, we hear that Georgia is actually, the new Hollywood is actually competing with Hollywood and that Georgia's getting a lot of film. Atlanta specifically, yeah. it's like the new hub. So I guess that's the right place to be right now. Yeah, it was an easy decision for me because I had lived here before, way before I even got into the film industry back in 2006. I lived here for three years and I had bought a house back then. So I already have a home here and so it was very easy to just, you know, come back. But not everybody has it that easy and some people, and I don't have anything that I have to be in Florida for, but there's people who are married or have families or have kids and it's not that easy for an entire family. So it's really tough for a lot of people, you know, I'm not saying that people don't have it worse out there. <laughs> you know, there's obviously bigger problems in the world. But it's it's sad that something that should have been easy and should should be a no-brainer because, you know, I don't think Miami, that's which is where I'm from, I don't think that would be the 
international hub that it is today and, you know, the playground to, to all the stars, if it wasn't for some stuff like Miami Vice and other shows like that, that maybe, the, you know, that shows the world how beautiful it is and, you know, how fun and exciting it is. Yeah, so absolutely. I definitely agree with you there. And there's, you know, there has been a lot of shows and movies that have been filmed down there in the past few years. And then, like you said, everything has dissolved. I think that Bloodline may still be filming in the Keys, but even, you know, they're, they're probably going to be ending that too because when you lose that incentive, it's like you barely break even. You know? Well, they actually, this this is their last season. Their last so season anyway, so yeah. then they're done. They've already announced it, yeah. Let's talk about the films you have done. Do you have three features that you funded within, what was it, like three years? Three features within three years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they all have international distribution. That's amazing. Tell me how you did that. I want to hear all about it. Yeah, I, I wish I had I wish I had started with the short because my first feature, which I, I had just written, I hadn't expected to direct or, or help direct or anything like that. I just kind of jumped in because I kind of felt I needed to. But um, I, I learned so much on that. I wish I could have learned that in a short instead of a feature, you know. But it, it's been a combination of things. The first thing, you know, I started later in life. So I had a full-blown career where I made some very good contacts and those contacts like me. <laughs> and I was able to, um, when you know, when I said to them, I'm going to make a movie, they were willing to invest, not so much in the movie as they were willing to invest in me and my dream. And so once once you have that, I mean, that's the, that's the hardest thing for everybody is the funding. So because they, I had built up this trust with these people, I was able to make my first feature. And then once you make one, the second one becomes easier. And, and on and on and on, you know I mean? You can, I, I have been able to get the profits that were made from Hazmat and made All Girls Weekend from that. And, and on, you know, and just being able to continue working with these people. And I don't think any of them expect that they're going to become millionaires out of, off of these, you know, low-budget features. And I don't think that they're expecting anything other than just, you know, to be there if I ever make it, you know, if, if you will. So it, in that sense, that hasn't been as hard for me as it has as it does with other people. I mean, if you're just graduating film school and you're 21, it's going to be harder for people to trust you, you know, that you're, you can be responsible with money that you, you know that you're somebody that they can trust with something like that and that's really I mean that's been because of that I've been able to do all the films that I have been able to do so I, I, other than wait 20 years to make your films I don't know what other advice I could give them <laughs> when I was researching you for the for the interview I noticed that you have won some awards recently and I wanted to know if you wanted to talk about any of the film festivals that you entered or any of the awards that you won I'm curious about the Orlando one the horror film festival that was it was actually well there was two in Orlando there once the free show uh, horror film festival and that mm-hmm. uh, we won best feature uh, for agoraphobia and then that same year at the Empire Film Festival we won for the best Florida film uh, it's the it spooky it's the spooky Empire like part of that whole convention right yeah it's during the convention and more recently has been actually just uh, myself and one of the films has been just some recognition for just achievements as a filmmaker or as a screenwriter especially in South Florida you know I don't know how far I am like I said most people are, are leaving so there's not there weren't that many of us left anyway but but it was it was nice it was, it was very nice especially because I knew I was leaving at that point and it was very um, bittersweet 
to have that kind of recognition from, from the local filmmakers there. And, and there's like a, there's a really badness for everybody who lives down there about going on and, you know, and the helpless feeling because there's nothing we can do about it. So. Yeah, that's what I was, I was kind of bummed out about that because I went to film school there. I, in fact, there are some people down there that I was thinking, great, if we bring a movie down there, we bring money to South Florida, I know who I'll hire. You know, we'll hire people that, that I know that I went to film school with that are doing really good work out there that, you know, that could really use it. And I just thought this could be a win, win, win. I was really bummed to find out that there's nothing going on. So because when I, like I said, when I left, think- um, my form, I worked at the Florida media market before I left and my boss has since passed away. She died of cancer, but she was so excited and, and she was telling me all these things that, that we were going to bring to South Florida. It's just a total bummer right now. In your videos that we had watched, saw the whole little clip of the mistress of suspense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how how long has that been going on? How long have you been the mistress of suspense now? Is that your official moniker? I, love, I knew if I say it enough that somebody would catch on. Right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I, my favorite director of all time, not personally because I just recently found out what an a-hole he was, but definitely professionally was Alfred Hitchcock. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and this really the kind of films I want to make. I mean, yeah, there's horrific elements in my movies but they're not exactly 100% horror they're more thrillers and I, and I like Wish and I like all that kind of thing I, and I'm, I really like strong characters and I'm more concerned with storytelling than I am about caring people and in that regard you know I, I feel like my films are more like him than they are I don't know John Comperton or something you know right. so this is you know this ongoing joke about how well I would become the female after Hitchcock and so I started with the whole joke about Mistress of Suspense and now it's caught on among my friends and so on like you know just calling me that and of course now they go overboard just to be annoying <laughs> no but that's that's awesome because if you have like that title then people will know and it's like oh yeah we're signing the Mistress of Suspense mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's great it. I love it so can you tell and, us a little bit about your movies for people who might be listening who haven't heard of you and your films like a little bit about All Girls Weekend and Hazmat well the first, the first that I made by myself, which was the real first White Lotus production, you know, production, was a hazmat, and that was my baby. I mean, it, it, I just, it, it was so much work. That one, I really truly did everything on. Uh, I, I didn't even produce for anybody else, so it, it all fell on me. And it's more of a slasher, so that one's more of a horror film, but it has sort of supernatural stuff that happens as well. And it basically, a, it's one of those reality shows where they have a hidden cameras and they, they play pranks on people and it just all goes along. And now they're trapped inside this building with a guy who has an axe and is slowly but surely killing everybody. So that's, that one's pretty much everywhere in the U.S. You can find on iTunes, Amazon, any of those there. It's on Amazon Prime, at least it was a, a couple weeks ago. And, and that one was, was huge. It was such a good, you know, it, was, it, it did so well. It was on Red Box and so on that it, that really helped propel the other one. After that, Agoraphobia, which is not released here in the U.S. or reasons I can't 
can't really get into, but it's just about every other country internationally. Um, that has uh, Tony Todd from the Candy Memories and Cassie Skirbel, who was in Sharknado. And it's more of a, a haunted house story. And then um, all those weekends completely different. It, there's a supernatural aspect to it, but it, it's an all-female cast. There's actually no men at all. The only guys that you see in the movie are in the picture. But other than that, it's all females. Even There's even like a first clip of a, of a mother and daughter who are lost in, in the woods. And again, mother and daughter are not, you know, there's no son. And it's about five girls who go on what looks like an innocent hike and instead really crazy stuff is happening and they don't understand why. At first it looks like it's just, you know, bad luck, but and there is something supernatural going on which I can't really reveal without really the twist. Right. But, <laughs> but no um, spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers, no spoilers. Uh, and I went out of my way to, to pass the Bechdel test on that. I, I You know, they don't ever talk about just some minor things like you and your boyfriend, but other than that, there's not a lot of talk about men or a lot about, well, you still my boyfriend or well, this is how I feel about being in a relationship. None of that. It's mostly about the relationship between these five women and how these girls who knew each other from childhood, how they, you know, really fallen uh, apart over the years. And then after that, I just finished three, which is probably the script I love the most. And let's see what kind of reception I get. But it's really three people, man and a woman, who decide to kidnap a man who allegedly raped the girl. And the whole, you know, it, it's we just finished it, so we're just submitting to some festivals. Not available soon, anytime soon. But it, that one is um, more of a psychological thriller, and I hope people love it because I really, I really, really like the the story, and, and I hope that they like the twist. As a writer, what is your what is your writing process like? I don't know how people did it before phone, before you had a computer in your hand, because I carry my phone with me all the time, and whenever I have a story idea, I will write it down in my notes, and then if I think of something else, I'd add to it. I'll add to it, and um, like right now, I'm I'm working on one, but it will take me months before I start writing. I rather have thought of everything that I can think of, and I'll just be adding on my notes. And then once I start writing, I first I'll spend a day doing a like a breakdown of, of the script, being sure to do you know three act structure, making sure I follow the beat. I'm a huge believer in Save the Cat. I know some people think it's tired and you know and it's too much of a recipe, but I I love it. I think it's very helpful. And then once I've done that, that's one day usually, maybe two if um, I can do it the whole day. And then I'll sit down to write, and I usually write about 20 to 30 pages a day. So I can do a script in about, you know, three days, three, four days of writing. So I do them very quickly because by the time I start writing, I already know exactly what's going to happen. So I don't, you know, I, I avoid, I just block as much as possible. And then from from that, like from the script to screen, what, is, what have been some of your best or favorite experiences um, directing on set? It's actually quite stressful, I'll be honest. I mean, your responsibility, everything's your responsibility, you know, and you have, you have, you're doing low budget, so you're doing an entire feature film in anywhere between 10 and 14 days is the longest I've shot. You know, you're doing 10, 12, 13 pages a day, and that's a lot, you know. On a studio feature, they'll probably do half a page in a day, you know, as <laughs> 
some some things will you know they will shoot for a whole week. So if I had that kind of time, you know, when you when you get reviews and people are like, oh, you know, performances weren't you know not Oscar worthy and da da da, and you're like, do you realize what we did in a short amount of time? You know, you don't you don't have time to do 20 takes with an actor to get exact you know perfect deliverance and you know and and there's 20 things you have to worry about when you're worried about special effects and you know whether camera things work or not. I mean, something simple as deciding to use a dolly on a shot can really set you back time-wise. So it, it's very, very stressful. I think the most I've ever enjoyed myself on set was on three, this last one I just finished, just because we had all, you know, 90% of the crew had worked together before, so we really knew each other, we were really good friends, so it, it was, we didn't have that added dress. But, but even then, it, it, you know, we had basement that flooded, we had a room in the house that we had rented that was was supposed to have been finished wasn't finished so we had to lay down planks of plywood and pretend that that was the floor <laughs> oh my goodness it was, I mean just crazy stuff that happens on these you know little budget productions and it's just, it's just mostly stress I don't sleep for the time that I'm filming and probably not a week before that as well as you're afraid everything's going to go wrong so I can't really the writing is probably the most enjoyable part for me because that's there's no you know stress there but both producing and directing so stressful so so stressful is that I can't really say I enjoy, I, I enjoy it because I like finished products but not because I actually like the process yeah, I was just going to say like isn't isn't the finished product like the most satisfying thing in the world though it is and it isn't because you also see all you know for every person that points out a flaw, you see 20 others, you know, and you know what you wanted to do and what you were able to get done with a limited budget and limited time. So I'm also my worst critic. So you enjoy it because, my God, I, you know, I accomplished this. But at the same time, you, you pick it apart and drive yourself crazy. Do you um, go through a lot of edits between writing the script and, and putting it on film, or do you stay pretty true to your original bit? Not a lot, no. I would say two or three drafts at most. You know, I know some people will do ten. But, (laughs) you know, your name, Lou, is a a little bit gender neutral. Is that, did you choose to go by that name professionally on purpose? Or is it just like the luck of the draw that that's just your name? No, it's a nickname. It's a nickname. I've had that nickname forever. So it's not related at all to film. This is after, right after college, I had a um, a guy friend that I hung around with a lot and they always said oh you're one of the guys you know we can you drink beer and watch football right. <laughs> you know we can say anything in front of you so you know and so they gave me that nickname and then it just stuck through the years everybody all my high school friends and friends like that were maybe through them call call me that so that's when Facebook started like in 2008 or something like that but whenever I joined anyway I just used Lou because at that time I had a law practice and I didn't want my client to, <laughs> to right. you know see my private life and see you know me drinking or eating or whatever so I just started I just used that name to keep my private life private and then once I started making films it seemed like well I also don't want my clients to know that you know their attorney is out there um, making horror films. The mistress of consent. Exactly, right? So I was like, okay, I, I just, I'm going to stick with Lou after that. And then, it's, you know. But I mean, honestly, when people say my real name, I'm, um, I have to think about, oh yeah, that's me. Like, <laughs> people call me Lou so much that that's really what I answer to. Do you find that having a background in law helps you in film? Because I've actually, there's a lot, you'd be surprised that like there's a lot of lawyers that are filmmakers. The actual practice of law just sucks every creativity out of you, so you just 
is how fun and creative outlet. I'll be honest, a lot of people go to law school, and I know this is true for me and, I, and a lot of people I know, go to law school because they can't think of anything else to do. And they want to study paycheck, and, you know, and if you're already a good writer, because that's, I mean, I, I was an English major in college, and I wanted to be a novelist at the time. It, it was an easy transition and go, okay, I'm going to go to law school, and, you know, I can already can, you know, I can write well, and I have, you know, Excel and reading comprehension, so it seems like a, like a good, easy thing to do. But it's all unsatisfying in every level that uh, I think a lot of people don't practice for, for all that long, and they're always looking for ways to get out because it's really a stressful and not very satisfying job at all, other than the paycheck. The paycheck's are nice, but very, a lot of them are miserable. So I don't know how much it's that and or, or what it is, but you know, you're right. I, I know a lot of, uh, I know about at least two people off the top of my head that are that are women attorneys and now they're making horror films of all things besides me I mean and it, it, and, and for what I've done for the the producing part of it has been very helpful because it's, you know I get the material and contracts for the company you know for the actors right or just thinking with so. the contracts and the paperwork and all the legal stuff that does go into film you know I find I, I figure it's probably a really helpful profession to have you know, as your side profession, if it becomes your side profession. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely makes it a lot easier. I, I think people forget that this is a business and, and having, not only that, but because I also had my own law practice for so long, you know, I mean, I have a whole business background just from running that business that has been incredibly helpful. Oh, I bet. So you have a business and a law background and you're creative. So it's, you're like a triple threat as far as uh, the film industry goes. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... Um, this is very helpful, you know. So, like I said, so they want to go and have a whole legal career before they, you know, go <laughs> and pursue their dreams. They'll, they'll be, you know. I actually, I met, I um, met a young filmmaker who's actually doing that. He's like studying law, but his real dream is to be a producer. But he's studying law so that he can do it right and have a steady income and have that that steady day job because film can be a really unpredictable and extremely competitive industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, originally when I went to law school, my my pipe dream was to be a novelist and I somehow I convinced myself that okay you know I'll go to law school and during my off time I write and and then I'll get discovered and I won't have to practice law anymore <laughs> and then reality hit and and the truth is, is it's hard to be creative after you've put in 10-12 hours of working as an attorney you know and having to deal with people's problems and all you know it's and Having clients that you don't like and, and the stresses of that, you know. So good luck to him. It took me a long time. I mean, I had to be I, I had to be prepared to walk away from law, and even though I kind of still practice, but very limited to how I did before. What made you choose the the horror and suspense? genre over any anything else you know i just i've always been fascinated with with scary stuff and you know from or anything that's suspenseful or a mystery i needed to be solved i mean that was that was me from from being a kid i I remember my very first thing that i actually wrote down as a story was a uh, on a uh, on a course where we had to write a short story if you will and i wrote about you know, it was very Scooby-Doo-ish, if you will. It, 
it was about my classmates and I going on this trip in a bus and the, and the bus broke down and we went to the closest house and it was a haunted house. So, and that was me at 10, you know, it's just always been something that's fascinated me. I've written other types of things, but really most of the stuff has always been some sort of mystery, some kind of thriller. It's always been the kind of stuff I wanted to read. I'm, you know, not really into sci-fi. I'm not into... So it's just always been your thing. It wasn't like a, always. like a conscious decision, like, oh, I'm going to go in this way. You were just like already going that way. Yeah. Like uh, before I even, before I even started thinking, I started out writing scripts and trying to sell them. Uh, and before I even did that, I was, you know, before I said, okay, I'm going to make one. That's what I was writing. I have three or four scripts that I wrote before I ever decided to make one. And, and they were all kind of the horror drama. It was, I don't think it was even a conscious decision. I'll be honest with this. It was, that was the first story that popped into my mind. And that's what I wrote. Awesome. Yeah. And horror also is one of those genres that you know has a built-in audience. You're like, you know, it's yeah. going to sell. It's easy. It's going to sell. It's easy to make and it's easy to sell because it has that built-in audience. But that was part of the reason why the first film was made was because it was like, oh, you know, we did, we did a, a course on just general how to make a movie kind of thing. And one of the things that said, you know, if you're going to make a, a low budget, you know, movie, make it horror. And I was like, well, how perfect is that? I have like 10 different scripts <laughs> we can choose from. So it was, it was like, oh, okay, so we can do this. And, but before I knew that, I was already writing horror. But yes, definitely, you know, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, those are the things that, that have a built-in audience and that if you make and you managed to make it on a low budget and what have you. It's easy to sell, even though you don't have an name talent or you don't have, you know, a high budget. If it looks, you know, decent. So, okay, so before we wrap it up, because we've kind of like, I think, covered pretty much everything, unless, Joya, do you have anything else? Nope, those were all my notes. I hit everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're awesome. Uh, are there any other words of advice, any words of wisdom? I, I mean, I, I think those are the people are bigger, their biggest options, you know? I mean, I, I just keep, every time somebody asks me, oh, yeah, I'm going to make a Oh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, tell me about it. It's usually like, you know, 50 people and 20 locations. I mean, why making your why are you making your life so hard? You know, five people, one location. Come up with that story, and then you can actually make a film. You know, if you're shooting for something with that kind of cast, with that kind of lo- you know location number, you're never gonna make it because it's very hard to make a multi-million dollar movie off the bat. And if you don't make them for, if you if you have that many things that you have to take care of, whether it be cast or locations and moving the camera and moving, you know, moving entire uh, cast and crew. What you're, you know, you're just making it harder than it has to be. You just have to find, make the script as simple as possible so that you can make it for as little as possible and then there's a possibility of making it. And that's how you make five films. I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty good advice. Keep it simple. I mean, that's good advice just in life in general is just keep it simple. Don't Mm -hmm. make things too hard for yourself. I think that's thank you great so much. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But yeah, thank you yeah. so much for taking the time out of your day. No, uh, no, it's been crazy. But yeah, I'm so yeah, I'm so glad to finally getting my life settled personally, so that I can you know go back to to this, which is making films, talking about films. Thanks for taking the time All to right. chat with us. All right, thank you both for everything. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much for taking the time. It was awesome. All right, yeah, have an awesome day. <laughs> Bye. And that's a wrap for this week. Tune in next week. We'll be talking to Harmony Smith of Chicks Making Flip. And in the meantime, go make your movies. And remember, you don't need permission. You just need passion. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.